and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia. And I guess if you are trying to stick it to annoying teams at a virtual pub quiz right now, <laughs> that's what we're here for, I guess. I, I Well, we're your hosts and I'm Lauren. <laughs> and I'm Julia. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just last week we were talking about like, oh, we're going to stick with the opening thing. Yeah. It'll be totally fun. <laughs> Julia's like, I give up already. Yeah. It's all it over. It doesn't sound right. Um, yeah, it's fine. So um, this is, I'm going to say, lately I've been in a really good place of finding cool stuff to talk about on the podcast. Great. Yeah. So I I was doing some research. I was like, oh, what should I do next? Blah, blah, blah. And then I was, uh, I found myself on a website called damninteresting.com. And uh, I'm going to, at the top of this podcast, I'm going to put some credits in order. So I got the majority of my info about this uh, from an article by an, uh, a writer named Erica Nesvold from Damn Interesting. Make sure you donate to this website's cause. It's very easy. I did. I, I tossed him a couple of bucks. Um, and they do great work bringing us, of course, damn interesting content. So my topic today is called The Right to Bear Arms, Private Voitech. <laughs> so uh, this is from an article called Private Voitech's Right to Bear Arms by Erica Nesvold. So let's start. We're going to I'm going to put you in the scene. All right. Let's talk about Poland during World War Two. Oh, my first. favorite place to be. Uh, well, not not no. for a lot of Polish. So, <laughs> first, the Soviets had invaded and annexed the eastern half of their country while Hitler's Germany took over the West. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of thousands of Polish nationals, including entire families of men, women, and children, had been rounded up and shipped off to labor camps in Siberia. Uh, but when the tides of war turned against the USSR, the Polish government in exile negotiated the formation of a Polish army on Soviet soil under the command of Polish General Władysław Anders. Um, but the Soviets could barely feed their own troops, let alone Anders's army and tens of thousands of Polish civilian deportees. So, in the summer of 1941, the joint British and Soviet invasion of Iran provided a solution. Uh, the Polish soldiers would be transferred to Iran and placed under British command. Uh, the Polish civilians would travel with them by boat and by rail, but mostly on foot. And many of them died from the cold weather or exhaustion. They had to travel over mountains and dry desert areas, and it was terrible. So... By early April 1942, the Polish travelers had crossed the Caspian Sea, but were still over 100 miles from their destination, which was a civilian camp near Tehran. Uh, They stopped for a much-needed rest near the ancient city of Hamadan, where a group of Persian boys caught the eye of a young Polish civilian. Her name was, uh, she was 18 years old, and her name was Irina Bokovic. So Irina noticed that the boys were playing with something in a sack, something that was small and brown and furry. Like a dog? Uh, Well, sort of like a dog, but it was a tiny bear cub. (laughs) Uh, One of the boys had rescued this cub after um, a hunter killed its mother. Uh, So the animal was only a few months old and it was scrawny and it was underfed, um, a a lot like the boys themselves. Uh, But a nearby Polish officer, his name was uh, Anaol Tarnowitzki, noticed Irina's interest in the cub. And he was swayed probably by the adorable bear, perhaps by the young woman, but he offered the boys a few tins of food, a chocolate bar, and a Swiss army knife in exchange for their pet. So 
Irina now has this tiny little baby bear cub, and she brings the cub to the civilian camp near Tehran. And he was tiny, and he struggled to swallow. He couldn't even Mm. swallow or eat on his own. So Irina and her fellow travelers fed him diluted condensed milk from an empty vodka bottle. Uh, Nice. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it worked, because he soon began to grow, and eventually she realized that she can't take care of this growing, like, wild animal. Yep. Uh, Especially in this camp. Um, that was already like their rations and their resources were already kind of depleted and they couldn't really take care of a bear on top of all of this. So after three months, uh, she offered him to the soldiers of Anders army and the little bear was taken in by the army's second transport company, which later became the second 22nd artillery supply company. And he was named Wojtek by the soldiers. Uh, the name Wojtek is the nickname or the diminutive form or hypochorism of Wojciech, which means happy warrior. It's an old Slavic name that's still common in Poland. Hmm. So a little side note, uh, a diminutive of a name is officially called a hypochorism or a hypochoristicon, Ooh, wow. which is from the, yeah, which is from the ancient Greek, which means to use child's talk. <laughs> it's different in every language, but in English, as you know, so example, like Timothy, Tim, or Timmy, Tim or Timmy is like the hypochorism. Mm-hmm. Um, or you take an internal syllable like Elizabeth, Betty, or Bits, mm-hmm. like my friend Elizabeth is sometimes called Bits. Uh, in Japanese, it's a suffix. So you hear like Mako-chan, like Chan as a suffix is for girls. It's mm-hmm. a diminutive of the girl's name. And Kun for boys, K-U-N. Okay. Uh, so that's just... As an FYI, like the diminutive of names is called hypochorism or hypochoristicon, which sounds way more dangerous than yeah. it is. Like when you um, when we had to read Crime and Punishment and yes. the <laughs> the main character had about like 14 different names. Yeah, that's there, what it was actually called. Yes, it was a lot of like hypochorisms because there were people like you would use a diminutive of a name for like a friend or mm-hmm. a child or a, you know, a sibling or whatever. Um, I have a personal theory that men who still use the diminutive of their names as an adult never really grew up. So men named Timmy or Tommy. Uh, my uncle Tom was Tommy up until he was about 55 years old. So uh, that is my, my is a perfect example of a Peter Pan. But sometimes it's tough to get out of the habit of calling somebody that. It, no, like, for when, sure. When you grow up with them, like my cousin Rick, he was probably like 35 before I stopped calling him Ricky. Cause just cause it's like, he wasn't calling himself Ricky. See, that's the thing. If you <laughs> introduce yourself, hi, hello, my name is Ricky. Like, <laughs> all right. Like you're, you're an adult man. Like if someone else calls you Ricky because you've been calling him Ricky your whole life, that doesn't count. Uh-huh. It's like, if you personally decide I am Tommy, <laughs> And you have a full-time job, health insurance, and a child. I'm sorry, you cannot use the diminutive of your name anymore. This is Lauren's hot take corner. (laughs) Lauren's hot take corner. I don't want any... That's it. I will take no... I will brook no arguments. I brook no arguments. No. Okay. Back to Wojtek. Wojt... Yeah. So... uh, Sergeant P- Peter Prendis was appointed to uh, Wojtek's principal guardian. Uh, the quiet 46-year-old sergeant, soon dubbed Mother Bear by his soldiers, truly became the cub surrogate mother, wrapping the bear in his army coat on chilly e- evenings and cuddling him to sleep in their shared tent. Hmm. Uh, soon, Wojtek graduated from condensed milk to fruit, marmalade, honey, and syrup, and was often rewarded with beer, which became his favorite drink. I wonder if uh, they read him Winnie the Pooh. I wonder if they did. And that's how he knew that he should have honey and marmalade. (laughs) 
exactly. I mean, maybe, but it worked. Uh, apparently, however, his favorite treat was cigarettes, uh, which he preferred to eat rather than smoke. <laughs> uh, as well, he would drink coffee in the mornings. So, uh, so he, as- was, he basically had the diet of an old Russian man. Yeah, he had the diet of an old Russian man or an old Polish man. I mean, let's be honest. Um, so as Anders's army headed toward Palestine to meet up with British forces, Wojtek grew up playing with Prendis and his other human friends who taught him to wrestle and to salute. So they taught him to salute every time they would like walk by Aww. him. He, could, he would like raise his little paw. It's kind of cute. Um, he also would sleep with the other soldiers if they were ever cold in the night. He enjoyed lingering in the camp's kitchen area where he would happily eat or drink anything the cooks offered him. When he had been a very good bear, the men would give him a bottle of beer or wine, which he would uh, like drink down very quickly mm-hmm. uh, before he would stare mournfully into the empty bottle until one of the soldiers took at the hint and tossed him another one. Um, Wojtek often copied the other soldiers, even marching alongside them on his hind legs because he saw them do so. So this big old bear thought he was people. Um, so... Eventually, Anders' army reached Palestine and began preparing for a large-scale deployment while they awaited their next assignment. And Wojtek was given a large wooden crate to sleep in and allowed free range of the camp with one exception, the shower tent. So he's a big, thick, furry bear. Um, He's born in a temperate mountain climate. And of course, they're in the desert. So he was like absolutely miserable. And of course, because he was absolutely miserable, he quickly figured out how to operate the camp's communal showers to cool himself. (laughs) But... All of the water in the camp had to be shipped in, so Wojtek was locked out of the shower tent to keep him from exhausting this precious commodity. However, on one lucky day during his early morning patrol of the camp, Wojtek discovered the shower tent unlocked and ambled in to enjoy a quick, cool shower. Uh, Instead, inside he stumbled upon an Arab spy intent on hiding out until he could break into the camp's ammunition compound. (laughs) (gasps) So so imagine, like, you are a spy. You're like, I'm going to get these guys' guns. And you're like, I'm going to hide in the shower. It's going to be great. And then all of a sudden, here's <laughs> all of a sudden, this gigantic bear comes in on his hind legs with a on bottle his... of wine <laughs> and a towel draped over his one paw, yeah. like ready to take a quick shower sure. and drink some wine. So in the commotion that followed, <laughs> the would be thief was arrested and Voitech's position in the camp climbed from favorite pet to beloved hero. <laughs> so they were like, this is actually pretty good that we've got a giant bear with us. <laughs> So by 1943, Anders' army had traveled through Iran, Iraq, and Palestine under the command of British Middle East Command. And many of these Polish soldiers and one two-year-old Persian brown bear joined the newly created Polish Second Corps, which headed west toward Egypt and later to Italy as an independent part of the British Eighth Army. So as the Polish army continued to move across the Middle East and North Africa, Wojtek stayed with his company, first riding in the cab of a truck and later, as he got bigger, in the back of one of the recovery trucks where he could stretch out or to entertain himself, climb around on the crane, because they had like a crane attached. So he would just like climb around on the crane. So, but in Egypt in early 1944, when it came for the time for the Polish Second Corps to cross the Mediterranean into Europe, they ran into a problem in the form of military bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. So British High Command did not per- permit animals to accompany units into combat, and they were certainly not allowed to board troop transport ships. They're like, well, you're not letting this bear on here. That's crazy. So... They, they wouldn't allow, they didn't allow um, pets or mascots mm-hmm. at this point. They were like, this is too much of a problem. Yeah. So <clears throat> Wojtek's company tackled the problem by enlisting Wojtek as a private in the Polish army. So he got a new serial number and he got a paybook and private Wojtek Wojtek Persky 
which the surname refers to as Persian origins, like from from Persia, boarded the transport ship with his company and sailed for Italy. So he was officially a private and was allowed on the ship. So the Polish Army's 22nd Artillery Supply Company, including their newest private, joined the Allied efforts in Italy to break through the Axis defenses to reach Rome. In 1944, the Allies' push forward collided with the German defensive line in the Italian town of Cassino. The focal point of the conflict was a 14-year-old Benedictine abbey called Monte Cassino, situated on a hilltop near the town. So while the Germans had initially avoided taking up defensive positions in the abbey in an effort to preserve the historical site, Allied leaders became convinced that the Germans were using it as an observation post because it was so high off, you know, it was up in the mountains. So they sent in American bombers and it like flattened the abbey. Uh, however, the Germans had no qualms about occupying the rubble, which provided excellent defensive cover. So they actually made it worse. Um, so for four months, the Allies assaulted the German lines in a series of bloody attacks that ultimately left 55,000 Allied and 20,000 German soldiers dead. Oh my God. In, in addition to civilian casualties. So this was very like a very intense conflict. The Polish Second Corps, including Wojtek's company, arrived a few weeks before the fourth and final Allied assault. It began on May 11th, 1944, with a massive artillery bombardment from more than 1,600 guns. <clears throat> so... The 22nd Artillery Supply Company was assigned to help to help supply this artillery with ammunition. That was their job. However, this was obviously no easy supply run. The men had to drive their trucks that were totally laden with heavy munitions and supply boxes up narrow mountain roads with numerous steep hairpin turns. And the German artillery were focused on this route, so the drivers had to work at night without headlights following a soldier who scouted the road on foot ahead of the trucks, wearing a white towel around his shoulders to be seen in the near pitch black. So this is like extra dangerous. Yeah. At the artillery positions, the men of the 22nd unloaded their crates as quickly as possible and then headed down the mountain to start all over again. So they had to like constantly be rotating through, like bringing it up and then coming back down and then bringing it back up again. Uh, And several drivers were killed when their trucks slipped off the treacherous path and plunged into the gorges below. So I'm going to read this next part and I want you and our listeners to remember that I am talking about a 200 pound bear here. Okay. Like I'm talking about a bear. Okay. Just don't forget that. So private Wojtek was understandably nervous during his first days at Monte Cassino. Startled by the noise of the constant gunfire and artillery barrages, he hid under cover and clung to his human friends. Soon, however, his curiosity won out, and he climbed a nearby tree in the camp to get a better view of the distant flashes from the enemy lines. Observing his comrades as they moved boxes of ammunition to the trucks, he joined in, standing upright on his hind legs and holding out his front paws. Each box of shells weighed more than 300 pounds and required four men to lift, but Wojtek effortlessly hand-carried box after box to the loading area, even stacking them to make the job easier for the men lifting the boxes onto the trucks. Occasionally, the bear lost interest in the game and wandered off for a nap, but a quick snack slipped to him from one of his friends would soon have him back on his feet. Uh, Polish veterans of the Battle of Monte Cassino later proudly reported that Private Wojtek never dropped a single shell. With Wojtek's help, the 22nd supplied more than 17,000 tons of ammunition to the Allied guns during the battle. So, for nearly a week, the Allied troops threw themselves against the German defenses, and at one point, Polish infantry units cut off from their supply line ran out of ammunition. Unwilling to give up the fight, they threw rocks at the Germans instead. And when they reached the hilltop, they overwhelmed the Germans in brutal hand-to-hand combat until their enemy finally raised the flag of surrender. 
So I'm wondering if Wojtek got mixed up in this. Like, you're a German soldier. You're like, we're going to kill these guys. And suddenly all these Polish guys just armed with rocks are like, coming at you. And there is a bear with them. (laughs) (laughs) They've got a bear. They have a bear. (laughs) Oh, no. Is he dressed up? Does he have a hat or like? No, a, he doesn't have okay. a hat or anything. He's just a he's just like a regular ass bear, <laughs> <laughs> who just happens to have a serial number and a paybook. <laughs> so, uh, despite suffering enormous losses, the Allied troops succeeded in capturing Monte Cassino on May eighteenth, nineteen forty four. Soldiers from the Polish twelfth Padillion Cavalry Regiment planted the Polish flag in the ruins, and a cemetery holding the graves of more than 1,000 Polish soldiers can still be seen from the rebuilt Monte Cassino Monastery today. Wow. So, after the battle, Wojtek was promoted to corporal due to his valiant service, and the 22nd honored him by adopting a depiction of a bear holding an artillery shell as their official emblem, wearing it proudly on their uniforms, banners, and trucks. Mm. As the end of the war drew near, Wojtek was sent with the rest of his company to Scotland to begin the process of demobilization. So in October 1946, Wojtek found himself in the Winfield camp for displaced persons on Sunwick Farm with other members of the Polish Second Corps. Once again, he made himself useful lifting logs and fencing material for the men working in the fields. Most importantly, he lifted the spirits of his fellow Polish refugees, many of whom hadn't seen Poland since it was divided up by the Germans and the Soviets in 1939. Uh, He quickly became a celebrity among the local Scots who would offer eggs, honey, of course, cigarettes, and the occasional piece of candy to the new arrival. And he was even made an honorary life member of the Scottish Polish Society, an event he celebrated, of course, with a bottle of beer. (laughs) So Wojtek spent just over a year in Winfield camp with his Polish comrades. But as 1947 drew to a close, the men began to make decisions about their future. Some decided to return to Poland, which by then was a country ravaged by war and now controlled by the Soviet Union. Others moved elsewhere in Europe or participated in resettlement programs offered by the British government. Wojtek's brothers-in-arms knew that the post-war Poland was no place for their bear friend, so they arranged a British resettlement of his very own to the Edinburgh Zoo. So Peter Prendis, Wojtek's original guardian in the 22nd, had survived the war and lived with Wojtek in Winfield camp for their last year together. He rode with his friend for the two-hour journey to Edinburgh in a truck loaned by a local member of the Scottish-Polish Society. Peter led the trusting bear into his new home without incident, his heart breaking at the idea of saying goodbye, but confident that it was the best choice for his friend. Uh, Wojtek ended up living for 16 years in Edinburgh. Uh, He was most happy when his former comrades would visit, but he also enjoyed interacting with the Scottish crowd who would throw him cigarettes and call to him in broken Polish because that was the only language he understood. (laughs) Um, Media attention contributed to Wojtek's popularity, and he was also a frequent guest on the BBC television's uh, Blue Peter program for children. Uh, Wojtek died in 1963 at the age of 22, which is roughly the average lifespan for a Persian brown bear. Okay. Um, at the time of his death, he was over six feet tall and 490 pounds or 220 kilograms. So this was a big ass oh, this bear. This is a big bear. This is a big old bear. Uh, so Peter Prendis died five years later in London, having been reunited with his wife and one of their children who had survived the occupation of Poland. Oh. Wojtek's legacy lives on in books, films, memorials, monuments, and the hearts of the Polish and Scottish people. Private donors funded a statue of Wojtek in Krakow in 2014, and a year and a half later, another statue of the war hero was unveiled in Edinburgh, this one funded by the Wojtek Memorial Trust. 
It features a bronze bear beside a Polish soldier, both standing atop a platform of granite excavated from Poland, a country that Wojtek never saw, but whose citizens never forgot his invaluable service to their cause. (laughs) Isn't that sweet? What a great story. So uh, Wojtek the bear was a um, was a Polish hero in World War II. This is the first I had heard of it. I thought it was so charming. Uh, but yeah, Wojtek was um, was a hero of World War II. And we're just learning about this now. It's wonderful. That's <laughs> wonderful. So uh, that was quick and dirty. But my quiz today is called The Right to Monster Arms. A quiz on Major League Baseball mascots. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe a mascot for an MLB team, and you're going to tell me the team that they mascot for. Uh, I will accept either the name of the team or the name of the mascot. So question number one, this baseball-headed mascot was the MLB's first live-action mascot, and his name is not super creative given the name of the team. He does have a missus, but she disappeared in the 70s. He also has appeared in several commercials as part of ESPN's This Is Sports Center campaign and was selected in 2007 into the Mascot Hall of Fame. Who is this National League East mascot? Question number two. This NL East mascot was hatched on April 17, 2005 at the Kids Opening Day promotion at Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium. A nine-year-old fourth-grade student, Glenda Gutierrez, designed the mascot and won a contest sponsored by the team, explaining that it was strong and eats almost everything. A new matured edition of the mascot was unveiled March 2, 2009. While patriotic, he doesn't have anything to do with Saved by the Bell. Who is this mascot? Question number three. This NL West mascot has been a mascot with this team as early as 1958, when they were still a member of the Pacific Coast League, a minor league baseball organization. He was named after a Spanish group of holy men who founded the mission around which the home city began to emerge in the 18th century. Who is this baseball bat-wielding mascot with a direct line to God? Question number four. I hugged this big, verdant guy a few years ago at Geek Bowl, much to the chagrin of his handlers at the time. According to the team's promotions department, he was a huge team fan who, in 1947, decided to move inside the left field wall of the park since it eats up hits that would easily be home runs at other parks. Apparently, he was very shy and lived the life of a hermit for 50 years. In 1997, on the 50th anniversary of the field wall being painted, he came out of the manual scoreboard and has been interacting with players and fans ever since. Who is this AL East mascot? Question number five. This AL East mascot doesn't really have a name, but was hatched out of a giant egg prior to the team's 1979 season opener at Memorial Stadium on April 6th. According to the team's website, the mascot's favorite foods are mostly birdseed with occasional crab cake. Who is this brightly colored mascot? Question number six. This mascot is a furry blue creature wearing a large pair of sneakers and a backwards baseball cap, complete with team jersey. He is described officially as a sea dog, having been born somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. He is said to reside in a private condominium inside Tropicana Field. Everybody really does love him, as he was awarded an honorable mention in the GameOps.com Best Mascot Contest for 2006. Who is this AL East mascot? Question number seven. This NL Central character became the team's mascot in 1973, appearing as a cheerful man with a big mustache. A beer-barreled chalet was built for him inside the stadium where he led the crowd cheering. Following each home run and every victory, he would slide down and plunge himself into a huge beer mug in celebration. 
he was joined by a female companion who would playfully swat at the backside of the opposing team's third base coach with a broom as the field crew swept the base paths. Who is this clearly drunk mascot who doesn't have anything to do with a Vermont senator? Question number eight. This mascot is an anthropomorphic purple triceratops. The choice of a dinosaur, specifically this type, was inspired by the discovery of a number of dinosaur fossils, most notably a seven-foot-long, 1,000-pound triceratops skull at Coors Field during its construction. His name is one of many slang terms for a home run. Who is this NL West mascot? Question number nine. This mascot is a green space alien with antennae in keeping with the space city theme of the team city. Originally serving as team mascot from 1990 until 1999, he was replaced by a new mascot, Junction Jack. However, to coincide with the team's move to the American League West and unveiling of their new uniforms, caps, and logo, he was reintroduced on November 2nd, 2012 to serve as the team's mascot once more for 2013 and beyond. No word on if he drinks that late 90s beverage with the floating jellies in it. Who is this mascot? And finally, question number 10, a mascot who is no longer with the MLB. He is an orange furry creature with a white face, originally leased in 1979 and designed by Bonnie Erickson, formerly a designer for some of Jim Henson's Muppets characters. He was also the first mascot to be thrown out of a major league game, but that wasn't the reason he was traded to the NHL. Who is this excitable mascot? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers. For most of them, I will be able to name the team, but I will not be able to name the, the character. That's fine. I figured uh, not a lot of people, unless you're like a fan of the team, you're not going to know like the given, like the yeah. Christian name of the mascot. <laughs> <laughs> so I figured I'd make it a little bit easier. Okay. Great. Here we go. Question number one. This baseball headed mascot was the MLB's first live action mascot, and his name is not super creative given the name of the team he does have a missus but she disappeared in the 70s he also has appeared in several commercials as part of espn's this is sports center campaign and was selected in 2007 into the mascot hall of fame who is this national league east mascot it's mr met it is it's the new york mets mr met he first appeared on the field on april 14th 1964 with mrs met in 1975 before she disappeared into obscurity oh no however the mets should do a documentary on that i know right However, the Mets reintroduced Mrs. Met in a mascot form in 2013. So they're back together. Okay. Oh, okay. he didn't actually, he didn't kill her he didn't and kill bury her, her under, the, <laughs> under the stadium. All right. Question number two. This NL East mascot was hatched on April 17th, 2005 at the kids opening day promotion at Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium. A nine-year-old fourth grade student, Glenda Gutierrez, designed the mascot and won a contest sponsored by the team, explaining that it was strong and eats almost anything. 
A new matured edition of the mascot was unveiled on March 2nd, 2009. While patriotic, he doesn't have anything to do with Saved by the Bell. Who is this mascot? Well, I think it's for the Washington Nationals. Yes, you are correct. Do you want to take a stab at his name? Is he an eagle? He is an eagle. It, okay, then I was then I was trying to think Saved by the Bell. Yeah. Like Mr. Belding. Is it <laughs> Mr. Belding Eagle? No, Belding um, the Eagle. <laughs> You're on the right track. His name is Screech. Yeah. Is the not the Washington National Screech. Uh, he is a bald eagle who wears the home cap and jersey of the team. However, one of my favorite secondary mascots are the racing presidents. So we're going to talk about the racing presidents very quickly. The team has a rotating cast of presidents beginning with Washington, George, Jefferson, Tom, Lincoln, Abe, and Roosevelt, Teddy. But since their debut in 2006, have also included Taft, also known as Bill, Coolidge, Cal, and Hoover, Herbie. Uh, a running gag with the racing presidents from 2006 to 2012 was that Teddy could never win a race. Mm-hmm. Although he came close in 2012 after apparently defeating the other three presidents. However, while he was T-bowing near the finish line, remember that? Yeah. Oh, my God. George drove up in a car and whacked him in the back of the head with a baseball bat, knocking him out before he could finish the race. In October 2012, however, just before the regular season ended and shortly before the Nationals' first postseason run began, Teddy finally won his first race and then went on to win four straight. Um, Bill, Cal, and Herbie... uh, recently i think it was like 2017 they retired to florida Mm -hmm. uh so now they race down in florida for the spring training and it's back to the original lineup of george tom abe and teddy (laughs) question number three this nl west mascot has been a mascot with this team as early as 1958 when they were still a member of the pacific coast league a minor league baseball organization he was named after a spanish group of holy men who founded the mission around which the home city began to emerge in the 18th century who is this baseball bat-wielding mascot with a direct line to God? I think this goes with the San Diego Padres. Yes, you are correct. Uh, and he is a monk, right? He, he is, he's a friar. He's a friar, okay. Yes, this is, his name is just the Swinging Friar. The Swinging Friar. He doesn't friar. have, the Swinging Friar. Um, he is a cartoon-like character, pudgy, balding, and always smiling. He is dressed as a friar with a tonsure, sandals, and dark hooded cloak, and a rope around the waist. Um, he swings a baseball bat, but reportedly in some years he swings left-handed, in other years he swings right. He may be ambidextrous or even a switch hitter, who knows? On home game Sundays, the friar wears a special camouflage cloak as the team honors the military background of San Diego with similar uniforms. Wow. Uh, the friar also rings a mission bell at home games immediately after a win. So it's a very Catholic <laughs> whole system that they got over there. All right. Question number four. I hugged this big verdant guy a few years ago at Big Bowl, much to the chagrin of his handlers at the time. According to the team's promotions department, he was a huge team fan who, in 1947, decided to move inside the left field wall of the park since it eats up hits that would easily be home runs for, at other parks. Apparently, he was very shy and lived the life of a hermit for 50 years. In 1997, on the 50th anniversary of the field wall being painted, he came out of the manual scoreboard and has been interacting with players and fans ever since. Who is this AL East mascot? I think that's Boston Red Sox. Yes, you are correct. And I think his name is Wally? You are correct. He is Wally the Green Monster. Um, apparently when the team began to grow out their beards as a trademark during the 2013 World Series run, Wally was also given a long beard. They just like tacked it on. All right, that's fine. Um, 
Yeah. In January 2016, the Red Sox unveiled a new mascot named Tessie, uh, who is Wally's little sister. Tessie apparently is named after the song, which has long been associated with the Red Sox. I do not know the song, to be honest, but apparently it's been associated with the Red Sox since like 1907. Okay. Question number five. This AL East mascot doesn't really have a name, but was hatched out of a giant egg prior to the team's 1979 season opener at Memorial Stadium on April 6th. According to the team's website, the mascot's favorite food are mostly birdseed with occasional crab cake. Who is this brightly colored mascot? I think that's going to be for the Baltimore Orioles. Yes. I don't know his name. It does. It's just Oriole. Oriole bird. It's just Oriole bird. Okay. That's just the name of the mascot. Um, Real Baltimore Orioles. Orioles are not, in fact, named for the city, but for the resemblance of the male's colors to those on the coat of arms of Lord Baltimore. Uh, They are the official bird of Maryland, as you can imagine. Okay, question number six. This mascot is a furry blue creature wearing a large pair of sneakers and a backwards baseball cap, complete with team jersey. He is described officially as a sea dog, having been born somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. He is said to reside in a private condominium inside Tropicana Field. Everybody really does love him, as he was awarded an honorable mention in the GameOps.com Best Mascot Contest for 2006. Who is this AL East mascot? All right. So who's down around? Who's down around that gulf, you know? Yeah. Um, you got the Tampa Bay Double Rays. And you got the Houston Astros. And... That's all I'm envisioning around the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. Uh, a sea dog, you say. Mm-hmm. A sea dog. Tropicana Field. Tropicana makes me think of Florida. Okay. I guess I will go with the Tampa Bay Rays. You are correct. <sighs> um, it is the Tampa Bay Rays. His name is Raymond. Ah. Uh, I love him deeply. <laughs> he is extremely cute. He is Aww. very floofy. He's extremely cute. He doesn't look like anything. I mean, who knows what a sea dog is? But um, I saw him for the first, I laid eyes on him for the first time while doing this quiz and he is now the love of my life. So just FYI, Sorry, I'm going to run away with a mascot. Okay. <laughs> Question number seven. This NL Central character became the team's mascot in 1973, appearing as a cheerful man with a big mustache. A beer barrel chalet was built for him inside the stadium where he led the crowd cheering. Following each home run and every victory, he would slide down and plunge himself into a huge beer mug in celebration. He was joined by a female companion who would playfully swat at the backside of the opposing team's third base coach with a broom as the field crews swept the base paths. Who is this clearly drunk mascot who doesn't have anything to do with a Vermont senator? Uh, My guess is that this is for the Milwaukee Brewers. Okay, you are correct. Is his name Sanders? No. <laughs> um, his name is Bernie. <laughs> so that he makes is, more sense. Yeah, his name is Bernie Brewer. Um, in 2001, Bernie moved to Miller Park, and today the old chalet has become known as Bernie's Dugout, stationed above the left field bleachers, where he cheers on for the team during home games. Currently, he slides down a plastic yellow slide, no longer into a vat of beer, but onto a platform in the shape of home plate when a brewer hits a home run. Uh, he was number seven in a list of the top 10 worst MLB mascots on ESPN.com in 2014. How about that? Uh, the Brewers also have Barrel Man 
as a secondary mascot, it's terrifying. It doesn't look, it's like a white amorphous shape with like a smiley face wearing a barrel. It's horrifying. <laughs> it's very scary. Like the, like the Greendale humans, but yes, wearing a barrel. <laughs> but wearing a barrel, basically. And he's got like a baseball bat, a baseball hat on. It's crazy. Okay. Question number eight. This mascot is an anthropomorphic purple triceratops. The choice of a dinosaur, specifically this type, was inspired by the discovery of a number of dinosaur fossils, most notably a seven-foot-long, 1,000-pound triceratops skull at Coors Field during its construction. His name is one of many slang terms for a home run. Who is this NL West mascot? So I think that's for the Colorado Rockies. You are correct. And let's call him... Slammer. Okay, you are close. His name is Dinger. Dinger. <laughs> Danger. Um, Danger is often seen on the field before and after the game and roaming around the stadium during the game, like most mascots. When Rocky Rocky's hitters are at bat in the late innings of a game, he often dances in the seats immediately behind home plate in an effort to distract opposing pitchers, <laughs> sitting down only immediately before the beginning motion of each pitch. So he's a dick. So Dicker is, Dinger is awful. <laughs> Still hasn't made the Rockies any better. Um, Question number nine. This mascot is a green space alien with antennae in keeping with the space city theme of the team city. Originally serving as a team mascot from 1990 until 99, he was replaced by a new mascot, Junction Jack. However, to coincide with the team's move to the American League West, an unveiling of their new uniforms, caps, and logo, he was reintroduced on November 2nd, 2012 to serve as the team's mascot once more for 2013 and beyond. No word on if he drinks that late 90s beverage with the floating jellies in it. Who is this mascot? Is this for the Houston Astros? It is for the Houston Astros. All right. I was trying to think of that. I got stuck on the drink for a minute, too. Yeah. Is it Orbitz? His name is Orbit. But Orbit. yeah, you got the you got the thing. <laughs> um, I don't have much on Orbit the mascot, but I will tell you about Orbit's the drink. Mm. Uh, it was introduced in 1997, but was quickly discontinued due to poor sales, which I don't understand because I drank a lot of it. Um, <laughs> Single-handedly, like yeah, the Buffalo yeah. market for Orbit's. Yeah. <laughs> I really tried to to like bolster their sales that way. Um, so little information about those little jellies. They float due to their nearly equal density to the surrounding liquid and remain suspended with assistance from an ingredient known as gelin gum. The gelin gum provides a support matrix, something like a microscopic spider web, and had a visual clarity approaching that of water, which increased with the addition of sugar. So if you think about it too much, it's super gross. Uh-huh. Um. And they thought about bringing it back in 2013, but then decided not to, because I guess it's still like kind of expensive to make. So, well, we drink like we drink like boba, so yeah, it's like but tinier and in a bottle already. Yeah, and it, but those float, you know, like oh, boba yeah. is just tapioca balls. Yeah. So, and I love boba. Yeah. I mean, pff, hell. Oh, I miss boba. I know. Me too. Let's okay. That's what we're gonna do. So when this is all over, you and I are, are gonna go to Target. We're gonna we're go get boba, and then we're gonna go to Target, Target for, th- for three hours. We're, for three hours, and we're gonna spend like four hundred dollars <laughs> each. Okay, yeah. that's the plan. Put it up on the big board. All right. And finally, question number ten: A mascot who is no longer with the MLB. He is an orange furry creature with a white face, originally released in 1979 and designed by Bonnie Erickson, formerly a designer for some of Jim Henson's Muppets characters. He was also the first mascot to be thrown out of a major league game, but that wasn't the reason he was traded to the NHL. Who is this excitable mascot? His name is Yuppie. Yuppie with an exclamation point. 
Yes. Uh, Yupi was originally with the Montreal Expos. We mentioned this in our uh, Expo episode. On August 23rd, 1989, in the 11th inning, while atop the visitor's dugout, Yupi took a running leap, landing hard and noisily on its roof, and then snuck into the front row seat. Los Angeles Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda complained to the umpires, and Yupi was ejected, though he later returned, confined to the home team's dugout roof. Yupi was abandoned as a mascot after the Expos franchise moved to Washington in 2005, but was adopted by the NHL's Montreal Canadiens team on September 16th, 2005, as potentially the first sports mascot to switch their allegiance from one sport to another while remaining in the same city. And we've also mentioned this before. Bonnie Erickson's papers are in the archives at the Strong Museum of Play. They so are. And she she's a whole subseries within her whole series, sorry, whole series within her collection on her and her husband, Wade Harrison's mascot designs, which are a lot of fun to go through. Yeah, they're super fun. So that was uh, my topic and quiz on mascots. Delightful. Great job. Thanks very much. Um, So yeah. uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. I know things are tough all over. Well, this is coming out in May. So hopefully by May, it'll be okay. (laughs) fingers fingers crossed um if not thank you for listening anyway um uh please rate review and subscribe tell a friend yeah tell a friend and uh and yeah feel free to reach out tell us how you're doing get hit us up on twitter and tell us some topics because we're always open for topic suggestions yeah we may not take them but we're always looking we for topics. We put them on a list. We put them on a list. Then, we might not do it right away. We have an, and then when we have to do some brainstorming, we look at the list. Yes. And then if one of them jumps out to us in that moment, great. Yeah. If not, it's still on the list. It's on the list. It's on the list. Get on our list, everybody. <laughs> um, so uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye.